pray for those who are shut in and would long to be with us. They would receive fellowship. And we pray for those who have suffered loss. I think of my brother Jay. What a blessing for his mother to finally go home, to be reunited with her husband. But we who are left behind suffer. So help us, Father, to rejoice that another soul is with you and comforted. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would move among us today, that we would hear your words and no one else's. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If uh, a couple of volunteers could come and take the offering plates. the offering, that those who give will do so with a cheerful heart, and may we put it to good use. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a visitor among us, uh, don't feel any obligation to give. Uh, you are our guests. We want, we want you to feel at home here. If you choose to give, we'll receive it gratefully, but please be our guests.
So uh, what do you reckon is your greatest problem, our greatest problem, the most fateful thing that we face with the greatest prospects of undoing us? Aggressive dictators, scourge of pandemic, political polarization, economic disparities, refugee crisis, global warming, racial tensions. There are a good number of plausible contenders. How about personally? Financial stress, chronic debilitating health issues, bad or abusive relationships, a seeming unshakable destructive habit. Maybe the long wearying failure to find love. These are hard things. And even harder is the question, what do we do about them? How can they be overcome? Well, the passage that we have before us this morning takes up this very question. What's our greatest problem? Both corporately, the whole of humanity, and individually, each one of us. What is the thing that we face that can really crush us? And our passage gives us its answer to that vital question, but further, it gives us an answer to the inevitable and urgent follow-up question, what can be done about it? Is there any hope in the face of these, our greatest problems? Now, we ought not to be surprised if our text strikes rather modern ears as strange and alien in parts. After all, the author, the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, is writing from a time and a culture very different from our own. Some would suspect that Isaiah's distance from us is so great that nothing he says could possibly have any relevance to us today. But this, I think, a mistake. For surely the fact that we don't have things like cell phones or cellophane in common matters far less than the fact that we do share flesh and blood. We are of a common humanity. So as we read our passage, don't be put off by its foreignness. It contains a message that is well worth our effort to understand. So uh, let me read it for us. I'm reading in uh, Isaiah, uh, beginning in 52, picking up in verse 13. I, I, I failed to neglect what page number it is. Can you give me that, Mike? What's the page number in the Pew Bible? 729. 729. 729. So I'm picking up, uh, picking up in 5213. I'll read through 53, the end of 53. And I do hope you'll open your Bibles and follow along. I'll make constant reference to the Scriptures. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. 
so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with a many, and he shall divide the spoil with a strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> is identified here in the text as our greatest problem. It's most clearly stated in the first part of verse 6, Isaiah 53, verse 6. Now, it might strike you as a really odd practice to jump right in the middle of our, of our passage, but it really isn't. For with Hebrew poetry, and that's what this is, it's Hebrew poetry, the themes often work themselves in parallel from the outside and they work their way in to the middle part. Uh, there at the middle is the heart of the matter. So the heart of the matter is at the center of the poem. And here we find Isaiah expressing the heart of the matter when it comes to our biggest problem. And here's how he puts it. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to his own way. I wonder if you find this a rather surprising answer. It's not that in Isaiah's day that people didn't face things like plagues and hunger and the ravages of war, uh, maybe uh, disease and deportment, inflation or poverty. Oh, they did. All of these things were conspicuously present. Isaiah simply identifies something far more fundamental, a root level problem, our going astray turning to our own way, as he put it. So what does Isaiah mean? Straying from what? Turning away from what? Notice uh, his image is that of sheep. Uh, the picture is of sheep straying from the path marked out by the shepherd. So who is the shepherd? Well, of this, uh, there was no question in the minds of Isaiah's hearers the picture was perfectly clear and very familiar to them as their minstrel King David opened in his famous Psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. So the shepherd is God, our creator. And it's from the path God marks out that we stray. When we go our own way, we are turning aside from the creator's way. So Isaiah is saying that common to all is waywardness with respect to God our Creator. So ours is an attitude which says, well, I don't care what path you've marked out. I will be in your world as I jolly well please. I shall set my course without regard to you. I will make my own way, thank you very much. And really, a moment's reflection reveals that to go our own way is to make ourselves our own authority. It's to repudiate God, our shepherd. It is to regard the very creator as a rival. It is to take the defiant stance of a rebel. I shall play the part of God in my own life. I shall be the arbiter of what is good and right and just. Now the effects of this turning aside from the ways of our Creator are varied and terrible. From genocide to lack of generosity, selfishness to suicide attacks, sex trafficking to the spoilation of the earth. We have made a ruinous mess of things. We have vandalized God's good world and we have victimized God's creatures. Yes, the effects of our chosen paths, they're bad enough, bad enough for us to think that they, the effects, are our worst problems. But it is the essence of our chosen path that is supremely morally horrifying. We have substituted ourselves for God, put ourselves in his place. And that, according to Isaiah, is our greatest problem. Tell me, 
Do you not know that Isaiah's description is true of you? I uh, certainly recognize that it's true of me. And Isaiah knew that it was true of him. Notice how in his statement, it's in the form of a confession. And he places himself in the company. All of us, he says, like sheep have gone astray. I wonder if you could make that confession. My biggest problem is that I have substituted myself for God. I have made God my rival. If so, our second question forces itself upon us. What can be done about this? Now, the people of Isaiah's day had been long taught to understand that such a stance toward God was deserving of his terrible but just judgment, death. That much was clear to them. And the whole sacrificial system acknowledged and reinforced that death was due to transgressors. An endless parade of bulls and goats and sheep were offered on the altars to atone for the sins of the people. But the sense was that, that, that the blood of bulls and goats couldn't really constitute atonement for sin. It was simply a postponement. Animals were not the ultimate answer. So the question remained, what can be done about the fact that we all keep piling up capital offenses against the very judge of the universe? It doesn't look good for us. To be sober-minded here, is surely to grow pale. But look at the remarkable answer that Isaiah gives to deal with this, all of our greatest problem. God is sending someone, his servant. This is the opening verse of our passage, 52, 13. Behold my servant. Now, Isaiah has made reference to the Lord's servant before. Sometimes it refers to Israel as a nation. Then even more narrowly to the, to the faithful remnant within this faithless nation. Once the title is given to a pagan king, Cyrus, who does God's bidding. But this time it's different. For this time, the servant is identified as the arm of the Lord. 53 verse 1, the arm of the Lord. Now, this is remarkable for the designation, the arm of the Lord, is none other than a metaphor for God himself. The arm of the Lord is God rolling up his sleeves and acting, coming down, acting himself in power. Now, notice, oh, and this is really important. If you don't get anything else, grab onto this. Notice how God's solution to humanity's problem involves his arm, not just his mouth. It's not enough to send a prophet, a mouthpiece, a spokesman, 
to tell us how to get out of this mess that we've made. It takes his own coming down himself and acting. If, if your notion of Christianity is that, well, it's all about instruction, how we ought to live, uh, and, and who could be faulted for thinking so? For, for that's what all religions consist in, kind of instruction as to how to live. But if we get what Isaiah is saying here, we realize that this is something very different. It's not fundamentally religious instruction. It's about God himself coming down and acting. And that's why Christianity very distinctively is not advice, but an announcement. Not, this is how you need to live to change your life. Rather, this is what happened that changes your life. It's fundamentally news. Or, as the first Christians called it, the good news to be declared. So, what can be done about our terrible plight? God is sending someone, his servant. But this servant is none other than the arm of the Lord. God himself come down to act in power. No wonder he says at the start, behold, you're telling me, this I would like to see, God himself coming down to act. Why, we've seen him bear his arm before. The plagues of Egypt, the angel of death, the splitting of the Red Sea and the Jordan. Surely we're going to see some fireworks, better than the 4th of July. But this is the odd thing. Very odd. For the profile of the servant Isaiah gives us is not at all what we would expect. In fact, it's closer to the opposite of what we'd expect. Even as Isaiah describes the servant, Isaiah recognizes this. Who is going to believe this, he asks in verse 1. So what's so unlikely or implausible about this profile? Well, for one, the servant is an utterly unimpressive and inglorious figure. Clearly, uh, yeah, it says in verse 2, he has no stately form or majesty. Clearly, this servant is not some hero from folk legends, the glorious warrior-type god from Valhalla. In fact, supremely, the servant is a suffering figure. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But there's something haunting about him. While suffering is the common lot of all, there's something extreme in his. Verse 5, he's pierced, he's crushed, he's scourged. And all this naturally generates the impression that he must somehow be under the special judgment of God. In a way, Isaiah tells us that this is true. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. His fate, it would seem, compels the conclusion that he must have been terribly guilty and God gave him what he deserved. But the fact is, 
the odd, inexplicable thing is that he was innocent. Verse 9. He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Pure and deep word, a clean slate. Well, if not for his own sin and offenses, why is he punished by God? Why is he marked out for horrendous suffering? Happily, where clarity is most needed, Isaiah is the most transparently clear. Verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Why does this servant suffer? Because he is, verse 10, a guilt offering a sacrificial lamb, verse 7. An offering to God to compensate for all the violations of transgressors. And the background here is very familiar, uh, the very familiar world of ritual sacrifice in which the Hebrews lived. The guilty party would lay their hand on the head of the animal in identification. This is the fate I deserve symbolizing a transfer of guilt to the offering. And the servant is treated by God as if he had done every vile thing we have done and do. The innocent servant takes hold of everything that blights our lives, our griefs, our infirmities, sorrows, afflictions, follies, rebellion. He takes them up and he faces their consequences. So in short, here's the summary of everything so far. Our great calamity, we substitute ourselves for God. Our only rescue, God substitutes himself for us. And what does this great substitution accomplish? 52 verse 15. A sprinkling of many nations. That's drawn from the language of Jewish ritual. Sprinkling meant cleansing. Like a leper would be sprinkled and declared clean, utterly clean. And it is a cleansing by removal. For the servant to have borne our iniquities is for them to have been borne away from us. To have placed our sin upon him is to have them removed from us. Verse 11 expresses what this substitution accomplished in a slightly different light. He, it says, he justified many. That is, he gave them a perfect moral record. In this substitution, there's a double exchange. Not only does the servant take the consequences of our wrecked and wayward lives, but we, in exchange, receive the credit for everything that the servant did and was. My righteous servant will justify, that is, provide righteousness, provide a perfect moral record, his own moral record, for those that lay their hand on his head in faith. He steps into our shoes, and we step into his. Really? But this sounds altogether too remarkable. Can this really be so? And a 
as Isaiah will slightly after our passage, record, My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. As far as the heavens are high above the earth, so high are my ways above your ways. And another remarkable thing. Notice that the servant was smitten, cut off, yet, strangely, he lives to see the fruit of his work. The servant will, verse 11, see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. So here then is Isaiah's portrait of the suffering servant. And although Isaiah presented it, he could himself not completely penetrate it. We know from, from 1 Peter it says that the prophets themselves, they puzzled over their own words, seeking to know what person or time their prophecy referred to. But there would come a day when there would be no doubt who this suffering servant was. And it was this very passage of Isaiah which would prove most precious and important to the first Christians. For it, above all others, helped them to grasp what God was doing and how it related to this Jesus who had turned their world upside down. Can you see? How this prophecy, such a mystery, was seen to be by the first Christians in the light of Jesus, such a match. If you're at all familiar with the gospel accounts, you can't fail to see it. As with the servant, so with Jesus. Nothing about his origin nourished any hopes of his greatness. Jesus of Nazareth? Splutters Nathaniel and incredulity. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Special? Him? Is this not the carpenter's son? Just a local nobody? Reckoned to be a zero? Was he a man of sorrows acquainted with grief? Grief was his intimate acquaintance. Sorrow was his constant companion. Scarcely had he started his ministry when the religious leaders of the day were planning on how they might kill him. The pressure of sorrow was so intense, it came out like sweat, as drops of blood. You, a king, scoffed Herod in derision, his only royal robe, Herod's, draped in mockery, his only crown, thorns. The hoarse cries of the crowd yelling, crucify him only interspersed by Pilate's thrice-repeated verdict, innocent, innocent. They cry out, but he holds his peace, verse 7. Like a lamb, he's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. He's crushed beneath the burden of the cross, then pierced through upon it. Yes, as Isaiah foretold, his grave was assigned with the wicked, for his body was to be flung in a common grave with the criminals who flanked him at the cross. But the wealthy Joseph of Arimathea interposed, asking for the body to place in his own tomb. And so, just like Isaiah said, he was with a rich man at his death. But, as Isaiah's prophecy cryptically indicated, his inglorious death was not the end for him. For verse 10, he will prolong his days. He would see his offspring, the travail of his soul, and be satisfied. And the Lord himself takes up the final words of Isaiah's prophecy as a final verdict upon his servant. 
Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great and will divide with him the booty of the strong. So the servant proves to be, despite all appearances, a victor. Friends, the life, death, and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus fits Isaiah's prophecy like a hand in glove. Jesus is the suffering servant. He is the arm of the Lord. He is God come down to act in power for our rescue. This the first Christians saw with clarity. The mystery was dissolved, and it was dissolved both ways. Jesus dissolved the mystery of Isaiah's cryptic prophecy, but Isaiah's prophecy also dissolved the great mystery of Jesus. For the great inexplicable question for Jesus' followers was this. Look, if Jesus is indeed God's chosen servant, whom he greatly loved, and remember we heard the voice of the Father from the sky, from heaven, how then could God let Jesus come to such a terrible end on the cross? Indeed, they knew from Scripture that anyone hanged on a tree is especially cursed of God. Deuteronomy says as much. How could the anointed of God be the cursed of God? How could the faithful servant of God suffer the frightful judgment of God? It just didn't add up for them. But it was Isaiah's prophecy which provided the answer. The servant of God was cursed by God in our place as our substitute. And it all came together for them as the strangest and most glorious good news. Now, it's likely that some of you are thinking, well, I'm glad for them that it made sense to them. Uh, they got their questions answered, but I still have a few questions. For one, this whole notion of sacrifice at the center of Isaiah's vision, it just sounds so primitive. Kind of on the order of stories we hear about propitiating angry gods, like, like dropping virgins and volcanoes. It's just all so primitive. You can't expect modern people to credit such a thing. And uh, if uh, this is your reaction, it's certainly an understandable reaction given that uh, we are, in our sensibilities, largely heirs of the Enlightenment, for whom primitive simply means unenlightened, a.k.a. stupid. Okay. But here's a question for you, if that's your perspective. Dare we be so dismissive of all things primitive? For, in this case, by primitive, we are identifying a strong instinct and a deep intuition as ancient as history itself and near universal across all cultures, an instinct that we are and live in relation to a reality that's beyond us. Not just forces, but a being. And that we are alienated from that being and need reconciliation. And that some cleansing, some propitiation must transpire to affect that reconciliation. And we may pronounce all that stuff mumbo-jumbo. But let us at least be aware that in so doing, we part company with the overwhelming majority of mankind across time and place. And that it's Isaiah's framework which stands in resonance with those deep abiding human instincts. So perhaps we should give us pause. It should give us pause to be dismissive. 
Some maybe find difficulty with the notion of substitution. How can a God be considered just and good who, in remedy of the offenses of some, punishes in their stead an innocent third party? Well, of course, on that apprehension of the matter, the revulsion is understandable. But this would be a grave misapprehension for the suffering servant is not an innocent victim seized upon, but rather one who willingly put himself forward as a substitute. His life was not taken from him. He laid it down voluntarily. Neither, as we discovered, is the suffering servant some third party God punishes. He is the arm of the Lord, God himself, taking the lash of his own judgment. Here, Substitution is the voluntary self-offering of God. And rightly understood evokes not scandal, but marvel. Now, some of you are probably still thinking, okay, okay, but, but this is all still so strange. Well, was that not Isaiah's point precisely? Who would have thought this the arm of the Lord? the saving action of God in the world. Well, will you miss it for its strangeness? Let me ask you, uh, through what lenses are you looking for God? What fancies dictate your expectations in relation to God's action in this world, in relation to you? What good reason do you have for those particular fancies to dictate? to form the lens through which you will look for God and discern his working in the world. Be careful that you don't screen out the divine provision, the only provision that is for our greatest problem, a problem so great it will ultimately crush us apart from God. Will yours be as the eye of Sauron, scanning the landscape for the ring, never thinking to look for a hobbit. But a hobbit was the ring bearer. But probably in this good crowd, some of us perhaps face a different challenge. The arm of the Lord is not for us unfamiliar. It might even be over-familiar. We've been instructed from Sunday school up, heard sermons, sung songs about Jesus and the suffering servant, but Familiarity does not mean beneficiary. It is entirely possible to, to penetrate the identity of the suffering servant and yet his sacrifice to not propitiate for our sins. As with the sacrificial goat, one must place their hands upon the head of the victim in identification. My sin rightly and recognize my sin would rightly place me there. The Hebrew word for placing the hand on implies leaning hard, putting your full weight on, placing the weight of our reliance upon that sacrifice, for there is no other way of expiation. Have you done this? Place the full weight of your reliance on God's suffering servant. Admitting your transgressions against God would rightly put you in the place of death and me. Admitting and then adhering to him as 
are and the only substitute with all the weight of our complete reliance. In Hebrew, the final word of our passage is appeal. The appeal of the servant for transgressors. So let me make this my final word to you. I appeal to you as God's ambassador. Be reconciled to God by taking and trusting Jesus as your substitute. Is this message of Isaiah not good news for you? Do you stand perhaps before your mirror with a tear running down, feeling your lack of beauty in the eye of the beholder? Don't you see that he saw in you such beauty that he was willing to lay aside his own beauty, his blinding heavenly beauty to become ugly, horrifying ugly, so unappealing that beholders would turn their eyes away. All this to have you as his forever and know that you are beautiful in his eyes. He loves you so much he gave himself for you. Take this servant song from Isaiah into your soul and not only will you feel beautiful in the eye of your beloved beholder, it will begin to make you beautiful in the ways that really matter. Do you feel crushed under the burden to achieve by your performance kind of figure that garners approval and applause? Are your nights haunted by terrors of failing to meet the standard, of being found out a failure? You toil on frantically to make the grade, to get the record that gains the verdict approved, accepted all the while knowing you are ever only as good as your last performance. Such toil is unending, and our record is fragile and faltering. But remember, the substitute exchanges our record for his. That's his offer. He steps into our shoes, and we into his. And by his record, not ours, we are justified. He took our place in court, and the verdict is in, accepted. You are in the sight of God, the judge, as good as his, the substitute's performance. What resting joy is there in that the verdict is in, justified, perfect record. What more security do you need to know than that the one whose verdict really matters, the one who knows all you are and everything you are not, has declared you immutable, perfect in his sight. There and there alone is real deep rest. That is rem for the soul. Oh, friends, take this message of Isaiah into your heart. Put your weight fully on the substitute and you will, as the Ethiopian that we read about, you will go on your way rejoicing. May it be so for every one of us today. Amen. Thanks, John.